I want you just to repeat after me. I am not the Savior. I am not the Savior. Will you guys do me a real quick favor and tell me who is the Savior? Jesus. Welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. This is Mike Gomer-Gormley, and I'm not joined by Dave Van Vickle because Dave got his flight canceled and we couldn't coordinate for this week's episode. Plus, I did a Steubenville conference, which is why my voice is pretty hoarse and awful. What you're going to hear is a talk that I gave based on Brandon Vaught's book, published by Word on Fire, called Return, How to Draw Your Child Back to Church. It is a wonderful book. We interviewed Brandon Vaught a few weeks ago. And if you remember in that episode, I said to Brandon that we were going to do a series in my church for adult faith formation on his book. And so this is the first of six classes that we are doing. And I've chopped up the talk to try to fit it in our EKSB time limit, but I really want to encourage you to get the book and to go through it and maybe go through it with a group of people, especially if you've experienced friends or loved ones who have left the church. Most people in that room are there because of their children, but not everyone. Some it's neighbors, some it's parents, some it's siblings or nieces and nephews, but I can tell you this, everyone in that room of 35, 45 people, I have no idea how to estimate audiences. Everyone in that room at one point or another was choked up because of how much they longed to bring these people home to the church. So in this talk, you're going to hear me draw some essential points, plus break down some of the statistics. Now I know statistics, often for those of you who are evangelists, you've heard this before, but it is good to hear these numbers again and put it in the context of our call to evangelize. Once again, I wanna thank Ascension Press for being so patient with us trying to create these podcasts with our crazy lives. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, I want to start off today's class through uh, a couple key things, and then we're going to dive in to some of the issues that I want to cover today. Number one, it doesn't matter who you are here for. It doesn't matter if they're young in college, in high school even, uh, young adults trying to build their lives, and they're building it without faith, older adults, siblings, whatever it might be, okay? I want you to understand that the grace of Jesus Christ is bigger than our plans, Okay, the grace of Jesus is bigger than our plans. We don't know the way God works all the time. It's a mystery. And a mystery when it comes to divine is not a puzzle to be solved, right? It's not like, well, I'm just waiting for all the pieces to click into place, then I'll get it, okay? Sometimes it's beyond us to get. It just is. And I, I wish I could nerd out enough that I could comprehend all divine mysteries. I'm not there yet. I think I'm about halfway there. So when it comes to the loss of our children or siblings or nieces and nephews or people that we love, neighbors, um, when it comes to their seemingly loss of faith, we don't know what is going on behind the behind the scenes, right? We don't know how God is working in their lives. We don't know how maybe their wandering away is a preparatio, a preparation to receive the gospel in a deeper and better way. We don't know. What we do know is we have before the Father an advocate in Christ Jesus, right? Who loves us, who loved his own all the way to the end, right? We know that we don't have confidence in ourselves. This is one of the, the main things in this wonderful Renaissance-era uh, monastic writer, Dom Scupoli, and Dom Scupoli wrote this book called Spiritual Combat, and the first chapter is all about how we need to abandon self-confidence 
and place it on Christ, Christ's confidence, right? It's not what I'm able to accomplish. It's what he already has accomplished on Good Friday and Easter Sunday and what he can accomplish still. So what I want you to do, I want you to do is I want you to do me a favor. And this is going to be super hokey, very corny and kind of uncomfortable. I want you to turn to the person next to you. Just kidding. I hate it when people do that. I want you just to repeat after me. I am not the savior. I am not the Savior. Okay, we're going to say it one more time. I am not the Savior. I am not the Savior. Will you guys do me a real quick favor and tell me who is the Savior? Jesus. Yeah, so I'm not the Savior either, right? I love it. People always all the time, if only you could talk to my child. And I'm like, I, truly, it, I'm, it probably won't happen. Nothing will change, right? I'm a train wreck, right? So the idea is we're not the Saviors. Jesus Christ is the Savior. He alone is the Savior. Amen. Okay, so what I want to do is take that guilt and burden off of your shoulders. Okay, I want to take that off your shoulders because you are not responsible for the salvation of the world nor their souls. Jesus Christ is. So I want you, when you think about them, when you love them, when your heart aches for them, when you hear some stupid story about how they're destroying their lives or whatever it might be, I want you to just picture, okay, Jesus, I'm not the Savior, but I'm giving them to you. And just picture yourself handing them over to Christ. Use your imagination. We're not Buddhists. We don't try to empty our imagination. We actively engage our intellect, our imagination, our will, our memory, right? So do that. Imagine the sacred heart of Jesus or whatever your favorite image of Jesus is, and imagine him there and imagine them and just pray, pray, pray for them, okay? Because our new conspiracy to woo them back for Jesus is, I can tell you the good news. The good news for all your loved ones who are baptized, Catholic, and all this stuff is we have a secret agent already behind enemy lines. We have, they have been marked by baptism. They have been claimed by God at one point in their lives, whether it was when they were an infant, a toddler, whatever, the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Trinity dwelt within them, right? And God, Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans. Right, So the Holy Spirit is working in their lives in ways that maybe we don't see and maybe in ways that we can't track or make sense of. But I need you to understand there is no amount of a collection of techniques that will earn your children back home. Right, You can come up with all the greatest arguments. You can have the patience of Job. You can have all this stuff. Right, But these are relationships and these are people and it's marked by freedom. It's not something that we can impose. It is only something that we can propose, like a marriage, okay? So we don't want to force our faith on anyone because then that, that's when we become the savior. Here's the problem when we're the savior. When we are the savior, they stop being persons and become projects, and we don't want that to happen. We don't want that to happen. Now, that doesn't mean we do nothing, right? The response of turning people into projects, you know, in order to not do that, we don't then become passive, right? Because we desire their salvation. Uh, Penn Gillette from Penn & Teller, right? He, uh, he's a notorious atheist, libertarian guy, right? And uh, he was talking about how he, was, he did a magic show in Vegas, and a guy walked up and said, listen, I know you're an atheist, I'm not trying to be rude, but I just felt compelled to give you this New Testament, this pocket New Testament. And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to impose. And he goes, no, thank you. If you really believe my eternal soul is destined for a fire of damnation, you are my worst enemy if you believe that about me but have said nothing about it to me. And he's like, so thank you for trying to love me through doing this. And when I heard that, I was like, well, that's intense, right? Because everything Gillette says is funny and intense. But uh, and I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of Penn and Gillette. But, um, or Penn and Teller. But the, the idea is if we, love, if we love them, which we do, right, we should, at some level, want to share the gospel with them. 
it might not be through preaching. It might not be through lecturing, right? It might not be through nagging or, you know, that like the thing we do with our eyebrows as parents. We're like, <laughs> right? Is it what we? All right. So what we want to do is we want to not get rid of all that stuff because as a parent, you parent, right? I'm not going to tell you how to parent. Uh, mostly, but uh, what we want to do is we want to be evangelists. As we go through, the last several classes are going to be much more about equipping, okay? They're going to be about equipping you to have conversations, to address objections and different things like that. But these first few classes are going to be about improving our understanding as to why people left. Mox, I think it was y'all that said, you don't know why he left, when he left, right? So a lot of people have ideas, right? They have things that they say, oh, well, he stopped going to mass because he's just being lazy and wants to sleep in on Sunday. And then you come to find out that they have a totally different spiritual life or whatever it might be underneath it. Or maybe they're evangelicals or maybe they go to a Bible study or maybe they do yoga, like whatever it might be that's become a substitute or a supplement or whatever. What we wanna do is approach the situation with clarity. And that's what really the first two classes are all about. Number one, the best thing you can do is never lose hope because your confidence is in Christ because you are not the savior. Number two is if you believe honestly that Jesus Christ is your source of hope, then you're going to start praying more than saying, right? I just made that line up, so you're gonna wanna tweet that. Pray more than you say. Right? Uh, That's so lame. That's so lame. But you're going to become intercessors. So every single week that we meet, we are going to spend the first 15, 20 minutes together interceding as a community for the people on our hearts. Okay? We're going to be praying for each other's children, siblings, right? Nieces and nephews, whomever it might be. That's what we're going to do. And I am going to guarantee you this. Okay, I'm gonna guarantee that if you will honestly take to prayer the concerns and aches that you hear in this room, back home, to mass, maybe go to an extra mass once a week and offer it up for the conversion of the people that are in this, you know, the intentions of the people in this room, we will start to see people, like, start to see crazy things happen. Gene and Jerry, were you guys at the Catholic Evangelization 101 that I did like my first year here? Yeah, it was literally like seven, eight years ago. I decided to do this class once a week and it was how to be evangelists because Catholics don't because the Greek Orthodox and Judaism convert more people to their faith than Roman Catholics and they're an ethnic-based religion, right? So you start to think about this, you realize like, wow, we really are failing in our Catholic faith. So I wanted to teach people. So I did this thing just randomly. I was like, who are you here for? Why, why are we here? And everyone voiced a person And then half the room was crying because their heart aches so much for this person. So then we just began praying. And every week I'd say, well, let's check in. And then by week three, it was pray for my, you know, we're going to pray for your brother who you haven't spoken to in 20 years. That someone where he is in California will spark faith in his heart or have a conversation or he'll have something. And then the following week, they'd be like, oh, my gosh, my brother called me. It was crazy. And I'm not guaranteeing every one of you will have that experience. But if no one has experience, you all get a refund, okay? Everyone gets a refund um, from whatever you've donated to the history of the church. Don't quote me on that. Uh, No, but um, I, I seriously believe this. Not if you just show up here, magic will happen. But if we take our prayer time in here seriously, go out there, maybe do a holy hour, right now we are in a community. How many of you, raise your hand if you said a child? that you're in here for a child. Okay, just look around the room, right? It's the bulk of people. How many of you said like a brother or sister, right? That have left the church. Okay, so just that, just that is almost everyone in the room. Okay, it's not everyone, but it's almost everyone. So let's think here. I'm not alone. 
We also got to think, what the heck have we been doing as a church that we're hemorrhaging so many people? That's what we're going to talk about right now. Okay. For every person who enters the one true church, for every one that becomes Catholic, six and a half leave. We are one of the most rapidly declining churches in America. The Presbyterian Church USA, which is a liberal mainline Protestant denomination, the last Presbyterian is walking among us, right? It's the guy who walks into the church, sees six people and says, you know what, I'm not going to go. And then the next week that church folds. That last Presbyterian is walking among us. Just because of legal immigration and all this stuff, we are right neck and neck, but that's the immigration of Eastern Europe, South and Central America, all that stuff. That's hiding the decline. Right, that's hiding the decline that we are legitimately experiencing in America. 50% of Americans raised Catholic still identify themselves as such, which means 50% of Americans raised Catholic no longer do. So if you have a child, it's a 50-50% chance that they're gonna remain a Catholic after the age of 23, but especially after the age of 30. However, so then of the people that remain, so of that 50%, those are people who identify as Catholic. A lot of times people are like, oh, these are people who go to mass. No, 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 no. These are the people who never go to church and who say Catholic on some form, right? This is not just people, and we think, we think that. So the 7% number right into that, 7% of young people raised in the church actually practice their faith and practice as defined as prayer and going to weekly mass. So I think when some of you were saying, I'm the only one in my family still practicing, or it's just me and one other person, or all my kids have left, you have experienced this statistic. We just experienced the truthfulness of that statistic in this room. Right, And so what we need to do is realize that this is not normal. This level of hemorrhage is not normal, okay? There are things going on in the recent history of the church, right? The last 40, 50, 100 years, whatever it might be, that we need to address and we need to, and yes, I'm gonna say it, I'm gonna use the cliche, we need to be the change, right? <laughs> we need to be the change. We need to start living a radical Christian life of holiness so that they don't have an excuse. Whenever I do um, parish missions and stuff like that, and I, I do a parish staff retreat, I am shocked, I shouldn't be, but I'm still shocked at the level of staff members who do not pray. So one day, I staff members, people who work full-time for the church. So one day, I said, okay, I'm gonna give you 30 minutes time to silently reflect on your own, and I was doing just a staff retreat. Uh, silently reflect on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I'll give you 30 minutes and then we'll come back and we'll do some discussion and then we'll go to the next talk. Uh, people start from, and they're staring at each other and I'm like, oh no, did I do something wrong? Did I say something? And I'm trying to figure out, right? Because when people start making eyes at each other, like, you're like, oh, what did I say? Some faux pas in there. The deacon walks up and he goes, hey, uh, real quick. I go, yeah, what's up? And he goes, I, um, do you think maybe when we come back you can do like a short catechesis on like how to pray? And I go, uh, yeah, why? And he goes, well, here's the deal. I know what to say at Mass, but I don't know how to pray on my own. And I just looked at him and I said, you're a deacon? And he goes, okay. <laughs> he said, but I'm willing to guess that most of the people here don't either. And that's where I came up with my pithy phrase that Father Michael Schmitz has stolen several times. It's fine, don't worry about it, we're friends. He said, or I said that he said, no. Uh, as Catholics, many of us were never really taught how to pray, only how to repeat. 
and it is powerful, the traditional prayers of the church. They are powerful, they are good, they are holy, but it's kind of hard to build a relationship if all you have is memorized scripted content for your relationship. You don't know how to listen, you don't know how to engage in mental prayer, you don't know how to intercede, you don't know how to cry out from the depths of your heart, right? Uh, Saint Therese of Lisieux in the fourth part of the catechism that describes Christian prayer says, for me, prayer is a surge of the heart, a cry of recognition and of love. And the question is, have you prayed like that? If we don't pray, I'm not saying just emotional, right? But like the thing that matters most to me to give that over to God, right? Many Catholics have never prayed like that. They don't know how to. And this deacon kind of made me uh, realize. So I began changing my tone of all my parish uh, staff retreats. And I do all the staff retreats. Hopefully I'm not going to do them anymore for our own parish staff. And the big thing that I say to our own staff as well as these other after that moment was if you don't pray every single day, start, right? Because the best time to plant an oak tree is 25 years ago, but the second best time is today. In two weeks, if you still don't pray every single day, quit. Because a church worker who doesn't pray is one bad day from a scandal that'll take out your parish, right? And I truly believe that. I truly believe, like we keep thinking, sometimes we think we're the savior, so if I just do more and say more and earn more and work harder, everything will be healed and everything will be fixed. But the reality is God owes it to his son to frustrate all of our work if it's not done first through a realization that the son is the savior, not me. Right? The Son is the Savior. And the wonderful book to guide you in this is called Soul of the Apostolate. I would encourage everyone to get it uh, and read that book. It is a beautiful, intense uh, gut check. I remember I was reading, I got Pat maybe on page three, and I'm like, well, there goes my whole youth ministry. Right? Like, I have failed, Lord. Okay, so think about this. Only 7% of young people raised in the church actually practice their faith. So for those of you who have young kids who are practicing their faith, Right? They belong to 7%, 93% don't. Okay, so let's just let that statistic say in my heart, I have to do something different personally. Okay, 79% of those who drift away from the faith leave before the age of 23. So often the decision made is between 16 and 23 where something didn't stick or something came up or they just drifted away. We're gonna go through some of the reasons. We're gonna go through more of the reasons next week, but don't worry, Hispanics will save us. <laughs> oh wait, the next statistic, 55% of Hispanic adults in the US are Catholic, 55%. So over half are Catholic, yet 25% of Hispanic uh, Americans are former Catholics. So even though the majority of U.S. Catholics will be Hispanic demographically in the United States, the majority of Hispanics will no longer be Catholic. One of the great missions that we do here at a parish, Deacon Mike Mims and I with Deacon Mort started the Honduras mission trip, right? Honduras in 1971 was uh, like 94% Roman Catholic. Today is about 70% Roman Catholic. Right? When we get on the plane on the United Airlines flight to fly down to Honduras, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people in brightly colored shirts, all from different churches and denominations, gonna hop on the similar plane or the same plane and go down and pull them out of the Catholic Church. 
And so the idea is not, I, like, I don't really care for, this isn't a, ma- a war between evangelicals and Catholics and all this stuff, but you have to ask yourself, what is happening to the face of Catholicism when we are so easy to pick off, whether into indifference and atheism or in evangelical Protestantism or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness? What is it? What is going on or what is not going on? Now, we're going to go through a lot uh, next week uh, to differentiate the reasons for leaving because we actually have a ton of data. We don't have to wonder why are people leaving the church. We don't at all. There are multiple dioceses, multiple Catholic organizations and universities that have funded multi-million dollar studies as to why they're leaving the church. We've asked them, and they've told us, but that's next week. (laughs) Okay, these are, according to Brandon Bob, these are the six main types of fallen away Catholics. And I want to go through this together, and I want to give you an opportunity to um, talk back about this. Cultural Catholics, Christmas and Easter Catholics, whatever you want to call them, those who may still identify as Catholic. They may put it on a piece of government paperwork or whatever. Right, but they don't, or maybe they might go to mass when they're at home with mom and dad. Right, they might go to mass during uh, once or twice a year, but their faith is more of an ethnic or family label rather than a personal reality and relationship with Christ. Okay, does that resonate with some of you in this room? Right, my parents are from uh, inner city Philadelphia. They were born and raised. In West Philadelphia. Okay, no, I'm not going to do the Will Smith song. But my parents were born and raised in inner city Philadelphia, Kensington. If you know anything, Kensington and Allegheny. If you know um, Tom Gosset, he's a parishioner. He always talks about, every time he sees me, he goes, you do tell Tim, uh, Don and Tur, the old K&A still alive and shooting, right? Because he's from the Philadelphia area. But they were from inner city Philadelphia, where it was rough. Now, my parents were born in the 40s, where they had the ethnic enclaves, right? My dad and my mom lived in the Irish part of the towns, right? The row homes, right? The townhouses. Next door was the Italians. My dad and a group of people stood on the street corner to make sure the Italians didn't come into the Irish part of the neighborhood, (laughs) which is so weird and funny that I was my dad. But, and then they would all go to the same church for mass. That's kind of weird, but uh, you can imagine that. But now imagine, right? What it's like when your faith is mostly cultural, And then the cultural underpinnings, right? You immigrate from Mexico into the U.S., all of a sudden that local church feel drops away, right? You move from, uh, you know, rural Minnesota where everyone you know is Catholic, and then you come to Houston where you have these, you don't have a small parish, you have a mega regional parish where nobody knows your name and it's nothing like Cheers, right? So So your cultural Catholicism doesn't just mean you only go to Mass X, Y, or Z. It means that the culture is the reason why you go to Mass. This is just what you do. It's not a decision, it's not an inward movement of my heart, it's not a surrender to God Almighty. This is one of the issues that we want to address. This is what things like Steubenville Youth Conferences, kind of their point is to get, we call them altar calls, right? You know, the old Baptist altar call, come on down, accept Jesus into your heart. So they do things like that at like a Steubenville conference or certain retreats because they want teenagers to make this decisive moment, I want him. Right? That's kind of the reason why those retreats and conferences and stuff can be, not always are, can be catalysts for faith. It's because it's always been cultural, but now I've made a decision for Christ. Okay, the shruggers, I love this one, the shruggers. Meh, M-E-H period, meh. All right, this are the group of people that I do not understand. And I say this because all of my friends in high school growing up here in the woodlands were all meh people, at least when I worked at the pavilion. They were all met. They all raised in Christian homes. None of them were Catholic, but they were all raised in Christian homes. And I was known as the religious guy. Oh, here comes Father Mike. All right, and I'll be like, bless you, my son, bless you. 
And I worked at the pavilion. I worked over in the, at the library, shooing cars away until, unless they had a $20 bill, then we'd let them park in the library parking lot. But uh, actually, my Catholic guilt prevented me from ever doing that. But man, we could have made a mint. Uh, but all my friends, like, we would talk about it, and I would say, uh, you know, like, all right, so what, are you religious? Christian, you know, yeah, I was raised Christian. Oh, so do you, you, what church do you go to? Oh, I don't, we don't go to church anymore. It's like, oh, oh, so you're an atheist. And they're like, no. And, and my head couldn't get around it because I had an intellectual conversion first. My intellectual conversion was, I don't want to be Catholic. But if he's real, and if his son is real, and if his son really started the Catholic church, then it doesn't matter what I want, I gotta go and I gotta follow and I gotta be a part of it, right? That was how I saw the world. So when I had friends that were like, oh yeah, I believe in God, but I'm not gonna do anything about it. Like it was like, meh, maybe he exists, maybe he doesn't, meh. That does not compute with my nerd brain that needs to close the loop here. So the meh trend, those who leave the church based on general complacency or even laziness, they are usually not bitter or mad, just apathetic. And in one sense, that's good because they don't have a chip on their shoulder. In another sense, it becomes more difficult because it's like raising the dead, right? <laughs> it's like, how, you know, someone asks the priest, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? And the priest says, I don't know, and quite frankly, I don't care. <laughs> right, so there you go. Now, if we can solve the apathy problem, we've solved the ignorance problem, haven't we? Once you care about something, you learn about it, okay? Case in point, my wife loves NASCAR. Okay, that's weird. Okay, my <laughs> wife loves it. My wife can tell you every major, like top 20 racers. She can tell you about their pit crews, the point system, everything. Who's favored? How come did down to whatever the guy's name isn't gonna be, you know, he's favored, but he drives the M&M car and it's not doing well. Last week they did a road course. I just thought they made left turns, that's it. And so in this, when, when I realized like, okay, I love my wife, this is important to her, I'm gonna ask questions, I'm gonna find out, guess what, it, it solves the ignorance problem. When you care about something, it solves the ignorance problem. But what do we do in faith formation, youth ministry, we try to solve the ignorance problem. If we just give them enough knowledge, then they'll actually care. And it turns out they can accumulate a vast number of facts and not care. Just ask a high school student, about how much they have a personal relationship with Napoleon. They can tell you every battle maybe if they're AP students with their you know, 5.0 whatever GPA, but they don't care. So it's apathy can be one of the most difficult things to overcome, right? It can be one of the most, indifference is another word for it. Any questions about that one? No, okay, moving on. The spiritual but not religious. This one just annoys me, but we all, so many people come from this place. In fact, between me and the coordinator of liturgy, Brian Jones, I use this phrase, spiritual but not religious, probably 30 times in a single day. Kate's overheard me say that. But uh, these are those who believe in God or a higher power or the universe intervening, right? Whatever it might be. Uh, they pray in somewhat. They still seek spiritual experiences, but they look for these things inside um, their rejection of dogmas and doctrines, religion, liturgy, etc. They turn to yoga or nature or activity to find oneness with the supernatural. I'm spiritual but not religious, right? There's a comedian named Daniel Tosh who said, uh, I met a girl the other day who said, I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. And he says, well, I don't speak the truth, but you're interesting. So the, <laughs> here's my problem with this. Here's my problem with this. Many people fit into that category. I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with it, but people fit in that category because they know that the material world cannot define all that it means to be human. So again, theirs are on road, right? They know that there is something more to life than just eating food and making money and that's it and copulating, right, is all that equals human satisfaction. But they have looked, at least they think they've looked at 
Catholic uh, spiritual life and whatever, and they've, it's been tried and found wanting. Now, this is my big problem with what I'll just put big quotation marks on this. Uh, modern Catholicism often doesn't expose people to the full like length and breadth of the Catholic spiritual tradition, right? Often people are not reading Teresa uh, or Teresa Lazou's um, Story of a Soul or John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul or reading the brilliant spiritual poetry. They're not put into touch with the beautiful spiritual life, the spiritual, the traditional spiritual theology that I studied in college is amazing. People don't know St. Saint, uh, Ignatius of Loyola, right? They don't know his principles of Ignatian spirituality, right? We have multiple classes that teach Ignatian spirituality here, and they're powerful stuff. But so many people don't have those reservoirs of spiritual life. And so when they've never heard it, they've never encountered it, the, the deepest thing they've ever you know, had outside of a liturgy is like, you know, just, re, you know, like, I don't know, some like colloquial phrase, bumper sticker kind of comment from the pulpit or whatever that, that doesn't give us enough. And so when they've never partaken of the rich spiritual depths of the church, yeah, I would leave that too, right? But when they have, the question is, okay, now we're gonna give them something that matters. Spiritual but not religious people, the difficulty working with them can be, they've, they've got it. The problem with spiritual but not religious is it's about what satisfies them. It's a spiritual form of religious consumerism. So they have this understanding in their court that life is more than just this stuff, but it's still on their terms. That's one of the reasons why religion is so important. Religare, the Latin, it means to bind together. It's not just about your subjective experience, is it? Did I impress anyone with my quoting of Latin? Probably, no, okay. It's not just about, it's about us. Like there can't be communion if all our religious practice is just what I experience subjectively. And that's the danger of I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, right? Okay, moving on. Moral movers, those who do have strong feelings about morality and ethics, right? Maybe they're on Twitter, um, but their opinions do not align with the church's teaching. They allow these differences to keep them away from any aspect of the faith, either because they feel rejected by the church or because they do not want to change their beliefs. I sat down with Paige Ingersoll, the former youth minister here, um, before she left, and we, you know, we were talking and we were coming up with a game plan for the fall, this is last summer, and I said, I want you to text everyone who's an incoming sophomore in college and ask them, where could youth ministry have done better? in your life to better prepare you for your freshman year, right? That's the information I wanted. So for those of you who don't know, I took over youth ministry uh, during COVID, you know, halfway through, right? So don't blame me for last year, but it was awful. But um, so I talked to her and I said, you know, go out and reach out to incoming sophomores and tell us what you think. All different people gave her different responses. I don't know who she texted or, or her method, but she read me the response of two people that reduced uh, both of us to tears. It was very genuine, it was super articulate, and I felt like it hit what I had been thinking, right? Because so, I was not in charge of youth ministry in the past. And she said, and when she read it to me, it was like, yes. She said, you taught me who Jesus was and how to pray, and you taught me the meaning and purpose at Mass. So they set up all the spiritual stuff. She said, I knew that stuff without a shadow of a doubt. You did not teach me how to deal with moral decision-making. And when I came my freshman year, it was like a tidal wave. Now, it's not like we didn't talk about moral issues. They did all the time. I was a guest speaker at the, usually just the chastity nights, but I mean, we do all that stuff, right? But it wasn't systematic, it wasn't formal, and it wasn't what they needed, at least this one woman, what she needed on that particular level. And she said, essentially, I'm gonna use my own terms here, when the red solo cup lifestyle, right, the drink and the party, and the whole, it seemed like the whole freshman class just immediately ran to that life. She said, I was ill-equipped 
to deal with that. She was equipped to maybe go on her own and pray and find Christ in the Eucharist and go to confession. She said, but after a while, I stopped going to confession because it just felt like a hypocrite. So she knew how to pray. She knew how to go to mass. She knew the meaning of transubstantiation, but she didn't know how to fight morally against this tide of uh, cultural hedonism that we find in college, right? So for her, that, so that was a big part. So then I nerd out because moral theology is like my jam, right? I wrote my senior thesis in philosophy and theology on these issues, right? So that was, so I was like, okay, 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 we need to go after this. Um, but many people, it's not just, I don't know because I have peer pressure, it's not just that. It's LGBT stuff, right? It's Black Lives Matter stuff. I remember one of the biggest conversations they did at youth ministry was debating whether or not to black out their Instagram. And I was like, I don't want to start making political statements with all this, just joining all this stuff. And they're like, but the teens will freak out if we don't, right? And I'm like, gosh. And then I started doing a, there's no teenagers. Like I did the Theology of the Body Week and was half from teenagers. I did this thing for juniors and seniors this year called a leadership seminar. And here's the deal. More than half of the kids in that room were card-carrying, critical race theory, woke kids. And to them, that's normal. There's no conflict there. It's just like, oh yeah, systemic everything, blah, blah, blah. And there's, like, if you're, are you familiar with critical race theory and all those things, all that, the woke-ism? Okay, if you're not familiar, that's fine. But I'm familiar with it from my readings 20 years ago in philosophy at Franciscan. Like, this is stuff that is 60, 70 years old, coming from French existentialist atheist philosophers, Foucault and, and all them. And that's finally making its way into mainstream America through Marxist teachers and all this stuff. The stuff that, like, the stuff your grandparents warned you about, right? But when I listen to them, these high school students, to them, they're, that is reality. And, I, and I'm like, are you, like, they're not aware of the presuppositions. It's in the atmosphere. It's in the water, right? It's in the air they breathe. And they just regurgitate this stuff. And then they look at the church with white Jesus, and they're like, how dare you? You're not doing enough. Burn Unipero Sarah. How dare you have the Knights of Columbus? Columbus was a murderer. Like, all this. And they can't even, they can't even think in terms of history, nuance, listening to the other side. It doesn't exist for many of them. So the moral movers, for a lot of people, they watched their children leave the church in 2016 when Trump ran for president because they saw him as the antithesis of everything they knew as decent, and yet here's all these Christians throwing their weight behind him, and it broke them, right? I, I had a friend who was a prominent Christian Catholic artist who completely left the faith because of Trump and it's Trumpism, right? Because she just saw, she's like, how could you vote for this guy, blah, 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 blah. And for her, it was the height of evil and everyone's like, okay. And her only way to rationalize it was, you're all just a bunch of white people and you're against everyone else. And so she, so this stuff is very real, it's very palpable and it's in the waters and it's all based on strong moral feeling. It's all based on their ethical vision of the world. And so many of us don't know that our kids or grandkids or nieces and nephews are adopting certain systems. I mean, we did that too. We're, we're just as much individualists as everyone else in America, right? Like people my era, we watched Madonna on MTV and all that stuff. We fought against, you know, maybe some, maybe some of y'all was Elvis. But, you know, we all had... We all had those cultural pop moments where we sided with that and told those old people to keep their morality to themselves. But you're watching this kind of filter out. Now maybe your kids or grandkids or nieces, nephews or friends or neighbors, they're gay, 
right? And they look at the church and all they think they hear is rhetoric of hate or bigotry, right? That's why I put that in the bulletin. I meet with same-sex couples that come to the church who want to baptize their kid, but they themselves don't go to church. So you don't baptize a baby unless, according to the Code of Canon Law, there is a founding hope that they will be raised in the sacramental life of the church, right? So I sit down with uh, the gay and lesbian couples, and I sit there, and I'm like, listen, I need you to understand anything, or this one thing before we begin. No one has ever loved you more. No one has ever done more for you than Jesus Christ has done for you on that cross. No one has loved you more in your entire life. Not your parents, not the people in this room, no one, not me, no one. One has loved you more than Jesus Christ. And can I tell you what happens every single time? They are crying because they long to receive that kind of love, right? They long to know that kind of love. When are we expressing that kind of love? Not we as parents. I'm not trying to shame or guilt anyone. Most parents have done more than their fair share of beating themselves up, right? I'm talking church in general, right? How often do we propose the gospel message of God's overwhelming love for them? So people, they don't see the moral stands of the church. They see all this stuff, especially Twitter storms and all this and virtue signaling and all that jazz, and they can't reconcile. They can't. And so they abandon. They don't investigate, which is on them, but then they abandon. Uh, number five, religious switchers. Those who are usually still devout members of a religion, usually an evangelical Christian or non-denominational Christian, and switched due to spiritual reasons. Many former Catholics, now many of us will say, oh, they go to the Woodlands Church because they just want to be entertained, right? I have heard so many, especially when Fellowship of the Woodlands first opened, that was a big, uh, big statement, right? Back when your daughter was dating his son, uh, <laughs> came to a Bible study and I was like, it's not a Bible church unless you have bishops and deacons. And I'm like, why is this kid so angry? Turns out, turns out it was Carrie Shook's son. Whoopsie. Uh, <laughs> that was so funny. <laughs> Brittany came up and she's like, you could have not said that. <laughs> Oh, good times. Uh, but um, oftentimes, what, what do we say? We say, oh, they just want to be entertained, right? <laughs> because we all know mass is boring, right? No, but we know they just want to be entertained. That's what we say. But what do they say? Why did you leave the Catholic Church and go non-denom? I wasn't being spiritually fed. The most common phrase, I wasn't being fed. We're literally feeding them the Eucharist. I wasn't being fed. Right? Because we're not giving them the person of Christ in which they give their ascent of faith to, and then from that faith, they encounter Christ in the Eucharist. Instead, it becomes just a, stuff, a bunch of stuff that we memorize and repeat. Okay? Uh, if you want to nerd out, there is a document uh, published by the International Theological Commission, which is run by the Vatican. Wonderful priest named Father Thomas Wynity. Uh, you don't have to spell that last name. Uh, he, the, he was one of the co-authors. The document is called On the Reciprocity Between Faith and the Sacraments. I'm leading our faith formation youth ministry departments, which now I'm in charge of the whole kit and caboodle, womb to tomb. So if you ain't dead, you belong to me. Uh, but uh, we're going through that document as a staff. It's like six major parts, and we just finished the first part. And um, it, it's powerful. Um, it, it was Jerry, you know, get me into uh, prison ministry. Every time, Jerry, I feel like you're in the classroom, I have to bring a prison ministry. But um, it was in that that I, re like, we started doing these impromptu Q&As during these prison retreats. And the men were all, they would all basically say the same question in different ways, which is, Christ said it is finished from the cross. Why do you add to the saving work of Jesus with the sacraments and the Pope and all this stuff? Didn't Jesus die for you? Just have faith and believe and you're done. And it was like, because for many people, you have Jesus, what he did, and faith in Jesus, and then added to that, you have the sacraments. Well, if you can just dispense with that and drink your coffee while you hear an actually decent, well-prepared sermon, right? Then it makes sense, right? They believe in the Bible. Yeah, we all believe in the Bible. But then it's like, but they make the Bible come alive, right? 
And then all the sacramental stuff that we necessarily didn't understand, it's easy to dismiss when you go to a non-denom. Because it makes sense. Here's Jesus, have faith in him, you're saved, right? But then I began when we were doing those Q&As and then helping all, um, you know, we did 12 confirmations in one year last year because of COVID, right? We had to delay the previous years. And I realized the, the central importance of the sacramental life. If the sacraments are real, then that meant they're a part of Jesus's gospel from the beginning, right? The very last words of Jesus in Matthew 28, go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, right? Why is the sacramental life tied to the evangelical life? Because you become incorporated into Jesus through your personal faith, but through the work of the church called the sacraments. Stop thinking of the sacraments as things and start realizing they are God's actions. Once you realize that, you're like, oh, Oh, this isn't just me going to this thing called confession. This is me kneeling before Christ crucified in his precious blood, forgiving my sins through the words of the priest, right? This isn't just me getting, you know, ratifying my marriage and having a big fancy church. This is our love affair getting caught up into the divine love between God and humanity. This is kind of a big deal, right? So religious switchers, we need to understand why they are leaving. And number six, skeptics. Those who identify as atheist or agnostic, right? The word agnostic, gnosis in Greek uh, for knowledge. Agnosis means no knowledge. We, we don't know if God exists. Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. Uh, whose numbers have doubled over the last decade. It went, I think, from 7 to 14% in 10 years, right? When a thing doubles, you got to realize that something is happening there, and that something is called the New Atheist Movement. Raise your hands if you've ever heard of the New Atheism or the New Atheist Movement. Okay, we got two people, three people. Okay, this is the reason why many of your kids no longer practice the faith, especially if they went to college in the last two decades. People like Christopher Hitchens, who's a BBC journalist. Sam Harris, who's a very, a very public, visible intellectual. He's a public intellectual, specify, uh, focuses mostly on neurochemistry, biology, um, things like that. Richard Dawkins, who's very, very famous. And then the fourth horseman of the new atheism, which I can never remember his name. So, um, but Richard Dawkins is like, I mean, if you've ever seen like a flame war human troll, and troll I mean like people who just go to get, say the worst things to get a rise out of people, that's what his books are. Like everything he does, right? Uh, the God Delusion is a New York Times bestseller, right? And you read the arguments. It is the philosophy of a toddler with the science of a brilliant scientist. He's an evolutionary biologist. His science is awesome. Like he is an amazing writer when he's talking about when he stays in his lane. But the moment he becomes a philosopher, you're like, this is a first year philosophy 101 could dismantle these, these lo the logical inconsistencies you could drive a truck through, right? Christopher Hitchens a little bit different. He tends to go after people like Mother Teresa. He hates Mother Teresa. Um, other people like that. But the, the problem is, uh, in Sam Harris's book, Letter to a Christian Nation, these are the things that I hear parroted in high school students. Okay, so for instance, this last fall semester, we recorded six, uh, six series talk, uh, talks on faith and reason, the relationship between faith and reason, religion and science, all of that stuff. Why? Because the previous semester, I overheard a, uh, a young woman preparing for confirmation, and her line was, you know, I believe Jesus was a good teacher. But, you know, like the telephone game, right? You ever play the telephone game? You got a line of people. One person says one thing, another person says another. By the time you get to the end of the line, it's all crazy. It's nothing like what people say. That's what, like, the gospel writers were like. Well, decades, centuries later, they write this stuff down, and it's all distorted. Now, suddenly, Jesus is God. And so I literally gave a whole talk on how the telephone game needs to be put to rest because that is not at all rational. When you have a society that is an oral society, their whole life is built around groups of people 
who do nothing but memorize and retell and retell and retell and retell to get every single word. When the Jewish rabbis copied scripture by hand, they literally wrote numbers in the margins of every letter they wrote. So it would match up with every subsequent manuscript. Like this is not people just being like, oh, well, this Jesus, he's pretty awesome. Oh no, now he's God, right? So I felt so on fire to address this issue because the mom of this young woman was one of my good friends. All right, we're going to take a brief break so that we can hear a word from the fine folks at Ascension, and we'll be right back. I'm Jeff Cavins. I wrote The Activated Disciple because I know how easy it is to practice the faith and to study it, but what if we lived our entire lives without doing what we learned? God doesn't just call us to be students. He calls us to be disciples, to look and live like Jesus. If you yearn for a life that moves beyond just studying and believing, if you yearn to become an activated disciple, then this book is for you. The Activated Disciple teaches you how to take your faith to the next level so you can become an instrument for God to transform the world. To order The Activated Disciple, visit ascensionpress.com or Amazon. All right, and now back to the show. And then what drove me insane was the dumbest argument for atheism of all time. I don't know if you know this, but Richard Dawkins said it on an episode of Joe Rogan. I don't know if you know who Joe Rogan is. Slogan that Richard Dawkins said to Joe Rogan that Joe Rogan said, this is the best argument of all. I can't stand it. It drives me insane. In fact, a buddy of mine wrote a book, as, and this is the title of the book, and it's 16, responding to 16 slogans of atheism. And the, the argument is, you Christians are atheists about the Greek gods and the Hindu gods. I just believe in one less God than you. Oh, wow, one less God. Except they believe you took the divinity and you chopped it up into little pieces. And this guy, well, he used to charge the lightning bolts. And this woman, well, sometimes she would have affairs with a donkey. And now you got donkey men. And this person over here, this person was the god of wine intoxication and erotic love. But then you have Aphrodite, who's the goddess of beauty and sexuality and sensuality. And I'm like, that is not what we are saying when we say God. The immutable, unchangeable, impassable, eternal, infinite creator spirit who's utter separate from creation and one sovereign act created all that is yet he is not reduced to all that is is something kind of different than Zeus and Yov and Brahman right totally different but because it sounds amazing as on a two-minute clip or soundbite oh well, I just believe in one less God that you're an atheist according to Zeus yeah because I don't believe there's a God bound to this creation who wields lightning bolts though there are so many arguments from skeptics from atheists, that people who haven't sat down and done a ton of intense thinking have adopted hook, line, and sinker. And many of them will say, like what I used to get when I was a youth minister here back back in the ancient of days, and kids would say things like, well, if God was really real, could he create a rock that not even he could lift? Right? The Simpsons made fun of that and said, could God microwave a burrito so hot that not even he could eat it? Right? So the idea of this, these arguments are out there, they float in the ether, and sometimes it's kids just looking for an excuse. But oftentimes it hits them, or maybe they have a professor at school, teacher at school, who hits it over and over and over again. And if they didn't have the intellectual resources then, 
then they certainly won't have it after getting chipped away day in and day out. And it doesn't help the fact that there's a culture of, well, you believe in religion, you must be an idiot, and you go to the Science and Math Academy, right? Or you go to, you know, you want to go to a, an Ivy League school or something like that, right? So what we want to do is help to rally the Christian message and showcase a lot of Christian scientists. The fact that Father David Huss was pre-med biology, his parents have been in medicine, you know, for you know, actually like four generations of doctors and all this stuff. Like we're not afraid of the sciences. You can incorporate their vision beautifully in the church, but often skeptics have certain topics that they've latched onto. And so part of bringing them home is about engaging with them rationally in the faith. For a lot of people, it's not rational at all. It's emotional. For some people, it's deeply, they have arguments that they've rejected, right? And so what we need to do in that case is learn their arguments. So Skeptics at least see the topic of God as important to discuss and have a personal belief about. C.S. Lewis said something along the lines of, uh, when people encountered Jesus, they either rejected him or they adored them. They didn't think, they didn't have a vague affection for him, right? And that's kind of what we have now. So what we want to do throughout looking at these six main types of fallen away Catholics is we want to identify maybe one of the people in our lives or the person in our life that we're here for is a shrugger, a cultural Catholic, a spiritual but not religious, moral mover, religious switcher, or skeptic. And so what we need to do is be wise as serpents but innocent as doves, as Christ says, and begin to equip ourselves to answer their objections, whether they're emotional, uh, whether they're cultural, whether they're moral misconceptions. And so uh, the, the last three-ish classes, we will actually go through a lot of these objections, you know, especially morality. We'll explain what the church teaches because most people are wrong there, but then we'll explain why, right? I've had many people become Catholic and in the class they say, I I really want to become Catholic, but I just don't get the church's stance against gay marriage. I was like, let's talk about it and I'll just tell you what the church has said and you tell me if it's at least rational. And at the end of it, they'll go, okay, no, I'm ready. Right? It's not because I can present the truth brilliantly, but it's the idea of they've never heard, they've only heard caricatures. Not your kids, maybe, but sometimes that's what they've heard. Or maybe they heard a miscommunication and they've rejected that. So there's still hope, right? There's still hope. Let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, you hunger and thirst for us to hunger and thirst for you. Sometimes, maybe, Lord Jesus, you can use the fallen away Catholic as a way to revive and recenter and repristinate our own faith, purifying ourselves of lethargy and laziness, allowing us to let go of things that we've always embraced, like maybe our own anger, our own rage, our own bitterness, our own resentments from the past. But Jesus, your healing love at this time of their wandering from the faith, let it also stir up, fan into flames the gift of God that is already within us. Let your Holy Spirit move in our hearts that we might ever purify ourselves so that we can come closer to you. Heaven is defined as the presence of you, O Lord, that nothing impure will enter it. So purify my heart now, purge it of all that is not of you so that I might cling to you. And in clinging to you, like Mother Mary, reflect your light, Lord Jesus, as purely as possible so that they might see the good that we do and give glory to their Father in heaven. Jesus, we trust in you. Jesus, we trust in you. Jesus, we trust in you. And in your matchless name we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Who is not the Savior? You're not, and I'm not. Okay. God bless you all. Stay classy. And I'm sorry I went long.
All right, y'all, this was the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was meaningful for you. Again, I'm going to encourage you to get Brandon Vaught's book, Return, How to Draw Your Child Back to the Church, and say a prayer for me and David as we try to coordinate our schedules this week while I'm on vacation. God bless y'all. 